0: Welcome to the Shoulder Physio Podcast, a podcast dedicated to exploring meaningful topics in musculoskeletal healthcare. I'm your host, Garrett Powell. Before we begin, the primary purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. The views expressed in this podcast by myself and any guests are information only, do not constitute professional advice and are general in nature. If you act on the basis of any podcast episode, you should obtain specific advice from a qualified health professional before proceeding. Today's guest is David Hunter. David is a rheumatology clinician scientist and professor of rheumatology and medicine at the University of Sydney. David is ranked as the number one expert in the entire world on the topic of osteoarthritis. And it is no coincidence that I have managed to steal David away from his very busy day to day schedule for an hour or so to chat all things osteoarthritis. Osteoarthritis is a prevalent condition that can result in substantial burden for those suffering. But in my reading of osteoarthritis, I've noticed a marked discordance between what the evidence base suggests versus the socio cultural perceptions about osteoarthritis. In this episode, we do a sweeping 360 of the osteoarthritis landscape, stopping at all stations along the way, uh, including terms such as bone on bone and whether these colloquial terms are helpful or harmful. We look at pathoetiology of osteoarthritis. We touch on the treatment for osteoarthritis, including both surgical and non-surgical approaches. And we look at how we can reframe what osteoarthritis actually is if a patient were to have possible aberrant or maladaptive beliefs about what osteoarthritis is and isn't. This is one of my favorite conversations today. And if I were you, I would grab a pen and a pad and take some notes along the way because there are many fascinating insights that David provides us with that I'm sure will have a substantial impact on your clinical practice. Before we start the podcast, a quick note from our sponsor, Clinico. Clinico is a practice management software that's used by 65,000 practitioners worldwide. It's great for busy physios, which is why it's an endorsed partner of the Australian Physiotherapy Association and the Chartered Society of Physiotherapy in the UK. You'll find everything you need to run a successful physio practice in one place, like treatment notes, digital forms, online booking tools, customizable body charts, and much more. Clinico meets privacy legislation for Australia, the UK, the US, and Canada. So wherever you're based, Clinico will keep you compliant. Charitable donations and giving back are also a big part of Clinico. A minimum of 2% of all Clinico subscriptions are donated to charity each month, which means more than, than 1 million Australian dollars in total have been donated since Clinico was founded. Shoulder Physio podcast listeners get 60 days free. Signing up takes less time than this message. Visit clinico.com forward slash shoulder physio. Without any further delay, I bring to you my conversation with David Hunter. Okay. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining me for another podcast today. I have a very special guest, the esteemed Professor David Hunter. David, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me along, Jared. It's a great pleasure. So, David, firstly, I think this helps the audience get a sort of grasp or a grip on on who you are. Tell me who you are, what you do. And especially, what does a, a normal Monday to Friday look like for you? Yeah, so I guess first and foremost,
1: I'm a husband and father of four kids, um, and I try to make sure that family is very central in my life. I guess to summarise myself professionally, I'm a clinician scientist, uh, meaning I'm a researcher that also sees patients, and the large focus of the research that I do is very much centered towards osteoarthritis and my clinical practice tends to mimic mimic that. And so I work both in multidisciplinary clinics uh, for osteoarthritis and work in a research context. And so I wear a, a few different hats. The primary hat that I wear is as what's called the Florence and Cope Professor at the University of Sydney. I also have a staff specialist position at Royal North Shore Hospital, which is where I tend to do most of my multidisciplinary osteoarthritis work. I'm the editor-in-chief of a journal called Osteoarthritis and Cartilage, and the co-director of Sydney Musculoskeletal Health. Um, And so, for a typical day, there is no typical day. So, so, so much. Um, But in general, I would see the the only thing that's somewhat structured is I see patients a couple of days a week uh, in outpatient clinics, and again, that's in a multidisciplinary clinic. So I get to work alongside physiotherapists, dietitians occupational therapists uh, psychologists and so on and it's it's a wonderful environment we do basically group-based care of people who have knee and hip and hand osteoarthritis so that's the only thing that's truly particularly structured but most of my week is theoretically meant to be focused on research and a little bit of teaching and when I say a little bit of teaching most of the teaching that I do is largely directed towards um, post postdoctoral, Researchers and PhD students um, who that I who I supervise, and I I run a research group of about twenty five people, a clinical group of about ten people, um, and so a lot of the work that I do tends to be very much focused towards human resource management, and the research group that I um, have the privilege to work with targeted towards clinical osteoarthritis research, and so we cover the full gamut of sort of doing. Epidemiologic research, looking at why people develop pain, uh, looking at biomarker research, particularly around imaging and why tissue tissue structure changes matter. We do a lot of clinical trials, particularly in an area called disease modification. So historically, you know, a lot of osteoarthritis trials have been targeted just towards symptoms. So we're also interested in not just targeting symptoms but targeting the underlying structure. We do quite a bit of health services research. So look at why people get the care that they get and how we can improve that. And we're increasingly do it, doing a lot more policy and advocacy work. So really just trying to change the way care is delivered and and hopefully improve the lot for people who are out there who have osteoarthritis. So long-winded answer, but hopefully I covered all of the stems you gave me.
0: Comprehensive, David. I would expect nothing less. So <laughs> out of all those hats that you wear, if I may ask, is there is there a particular hat you enjoy wearing the most or do you derive equal joy out of out of all of them. So Jared, I've as
1: you can probably see on the screen, I'm balding. And so the more hats I wear, it's probably (laughs) Me too,
0: David. It's
1: (laughs) It's probably probably better for a little bit of head coverage. But no, I um look, I I enjoy the variety, to be completely frank with you. Um and from day to day, some things are more enjoyable and some things are more challenging. But that that will often vary. And I I wouldn't necessarily say that I enjoy one more than another. I actually enjoy the challenge of doing different things on a regular basis and not having, you know, an 8am to 6pm clinic structure where I'm seeing, you know, 15, 20 people a day. I think my, my head would go into a mind spin after two or three days of doing that consistently. So I love the opportunity to teach. I love the opportunity to sort of work with that next generation. I love the opportunity to sort of push the boundaries on on research and, you know, with the sort of new hats that I'm wearing around sort of co-directing musculoskeletal research at the University of Sydney and its affiliated hospitals and also um, directing this journal that we're responsible for. That's providing new challenges, but also hopefully opportunities to
0: influence and shape uh, future careers and also the uh, the research agenda of others. And have you made a conscious decision to remain a clinician given i assume you're being pulled in the direction of research more and more and more and and just for context are you when you say a clinician are you, are you a rheumatologist is that is that your occupation there? yeah so i'm a rheumatologist and i've made a conscious decision throughout my
1: career to continue to have some clinical interface um and that comes about in large part because you know, I think it's really important for me and the research that I do to have some relevance to the patient population that I'm trying to serve. and if if I I think extract myself too much from that, there is the capacity for weird people like me to go off in really abstract directions. and I don't I don't want to do that. I really want to keep mindful and focused on the population that I'm that I'm really truly trying to serve. It's becoming harder if I'm completely brutally frank with you to to have all of those hats and to serve them well. And the challenge is that the masters that I serve for each of those roles don't honestly think about the fact that you have those various hats and they just want you to perform at 100% for every role that you're doing. And so that's, that's becoming harder um, and it's similarly becoming harder to remain competitive, particularly in a research funding environment, when you know that you know 50 to 60% of your time is dedicated to that activity, but you're competing against people who are doing that 100% of the time.
0: Yeah, um, we can imagine. Yeah. But yeah, so I I really do respect people though who do remain clinician scientists, and it's a lovely term. And I think it 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 provides you with a, a much more well-rounded perspective on things, in my opinion. Where I think in academia you can get stuck, and I'm being pulled into academia a little bit as well. But I am making a conscious decision to remain a clinician because I think it I almost think it's imperative to to sort of have that that plurality of perspectives almost do you plan on remaining in that even though it is tough for you oh definitely yeah, yeah. and
1: I, I would encourage you to continue to mm. to strive to continue to maintain those different roles and entities because it is so important as a researcher particularly I think clinicians, res- clinical researchers that they do uh, keep some clinical interface because the stories that you hear from patients are so motivating the challenges that they throw to me on a regular basis. So, you know, you know, David, why aren't you working in this space? Why aren't you solving this particular problem? It, it gives me pause for thought and gives mm-hmm. me pause to actually think about the direction that we do. We move in. So, you know, I can potentially substitute it. So we do a lot of consumer focus groups and work with patients that have the disease and they give us advice about the research that we're doing and the direction that we're taking. But I don't think it's necessarily the same as you know getting in the clinic, laying my hands on knees and hips, um, giving people guidance and advice, and but also hearing their reaction uh, to you know what we're encouraging them to do and the changes that we're encouraging them to make as far as management choices are concerned. Because you know again, if I if I tell someone in a guideline that you know this is what we would advocate for, but I don't listen to the reaction from the person who I'm trying to impart that to and don't listen to the the fact that it's impractical in their circumstances or it's impossible in the reimbursement context, I, I'm missing the boat, I think, a lot of the time. So it's really yeah. great to be in an ivory tower, but I think it's really important to get down into the coal mine, or, or be, that's probably a bit of a dirty word at the moment, <laughs> to <Yes>. actually <laughs> interface with patients
0: directly. Yeah, you become a bit detached, I think, if you remove yourself from that. From that. Clinical coalface, again, dirty yeah. work. So let's let's get into the number one reason. There's plenty of reasons why I got you here, David, but the number one reason I've got you on is because we want to talk about osteoarthritis. And according to expertscape.com, you are the number one world-leading expert on osteoarthritis, and that is a fabulous achievement. So congratulations for all your, I'm sure, decades of, of hard work getting there. So because you are the number one expert on osteoarthritis in the world, I want you to tell me, is osteoarthritis wear and tear? Yes, yeah, so it's a great
1: question. And I just first want to start by, I guess, um, framing a little bit of the success that I've had and putting it in the context that's appropriate. So any success that I've had in the research context has been by virtue of the people that I've had the privilege to work with, particularly my team, but also the collaborators that I've had and, and the patients who've motivated me to, to do better. And so all of the kudos should go to them. It shouldn't, shouldn't necessarily go to me. But back to the, I guess the the main gist of the question is about the terms that we use to describe osteoarthritis, their accuracy and how they're misleading. And so there's lots of different terms that are used to describe osteoarthritis, uh, including, as you mentioned, wear and tear. Uh, another one that's commonly used is degenerative, and oftentimes at least visually, and when people stick up an X-ray, they describe changes like bone on bone and other things like that. So let's let's talk about. All of those individually, if that's okay, um, sure. and then move and then move on and talk about why they're harmful and how best we re, we frame this disease in a way that's actually helpful for patients to get positively engaged and and motivated to do the changes that otherwise they need to do. So let's let's talk about wear and tear first. So wear and tear suggests that at least from a joint physiology and pathology perspective, that it's just a one-way road towards deterioration, and that from the perspective of wear and tear, continued loading and continued engagement of that joint is likely to to facilitate further deterioration of the problem. And so that, to me, is a complete antithesis, a complete myth, and it's a completely wrong way to think about both the pathology, but also people's reaction to the descriptor that you've given. So every joint has the capacity for repair. And so when we're thinking, at least from a pathologic perspective, about the joints themselves, when we think about, the bone, the synovium, the muscle, the ligaments, and even the cartilage, um, loading is helpful. And these are trophic organs that benefit from continued loading. The unfortunate consequence of use of terms like wear and tear is that patients often feel that their joint is vulnerable. And as a consequence, they don't want to load it because they're fearful that continued loading is going to cause further deterioration. Similarly, the term degenerative suggests that this is an age-related problem, which we know it does increase with age, but again, that it's just a one-way street to continued deterioration. And when we know lots of centenarians that don't have the disease um, and that potentially won't ever develop the disease, and it's certain characteristics that are about them that that I actually find truly appealing and inspiring. So, how did how did this person live for so many years? Live a really active and robust lifestyle but don't actually have osteoarthritis. That's a whole lot more meaningful and important to me than describing someone who's got the disease as degenerative and the fact that, you know, you're going to continue uh, to get worse in time. I um, mean, And likewise, you know, the, the terms bone on bone, and unfortunately a lot of my orthopedic colleagues tend to rely very heavily on the pictures that they see and radiographs and MRIs in particular and describe the disease based in those terms, whereas it doesn't bear much, if any, relationship to a person's lived experience of the disease. Um, and I think, to me, that's the most critical element that we need to understand is, you know, what is a person feeling? How is a person functioning? And what's their joint continuing to going to be able to do? And, you know, a lot of people, there's marked discordance about what we see on an x-ray um, and what a person feels and lives in terms of their experience. And that's what we should be focusing on is the pain that they're feeling, the function that they're limited in, but ultimately also the goals that they want to be able to achieve. And when we use terms like wear and tear, degenerative and bone on bone, it discourages them from doing the things that we know their joint is capable of doing and the behavioral changes that we want them to do.
0: Yeah, well said. Uh, Terms like bone on bone and wear and tear are almost part of our sort of common vernacular now in in just culturally aren't they you see we see i'm sure you more and more you get people come in i've got bone on bone i can't do this because i've got bone on bone in my job as a as a physio it's often used as my surgeon says i've got bone on bone therefore why should i be able to do this squat or knee exercise to assist the muscles around my knee and it becomes a real barrier so what what, what did do you do you steer away from using these terms in your clinical practice? What other terms would you use to replace these terms?
1: Yeah, I mean, so in general, I just talk about the pain that they're experiencing, the function that they're limited in, um, but really try to focus the conversation not on the x-ray appearance, not on the historical terms that are used to describe this. Um, but based upon you know you've got osteoarthritis, it's it's a disease that's associated with the symptoms that you're experiencing. But these are the things that you have that have predisposed you to this and are Mm. stopping you from getting better. So whether that's the fact that they're sedentary, they're deconditioned, they've lost muscle strength, they're carrying excess weight, uh, they're malaligned, or there's some other modifiable factor that I can then get them just to singularly focus down on, this is correctable, this is modifiable. And if you work with the right hands and you work with the right people, There are many things that you can improve here that will improve your lived experience. I think it's really important to be honest with them is that most of the things that we're currently doing to manage this disease, it's not about cure. And on that list, I would include surgery. Surgery is not about a cure. And so when we're talking about, you know, educating people about the disease, getting them more active, uh, getting them to lose weight, using uh, adjunctive devices to help with the loading of the lower limb, using analgesic therapies it's about optimizing pain and function and treating the reasons that they've come along to see you, as opposed to focusing down on things that will detract from the behavioral change that we we otherwise want to see. And so if you focus down on the using terms like wear and tear, degenerative, bone on bone, it's really going to discourage people from engaging. And it's really going to inhibit your ability to meaningfully change their behavior. So focus down on what they're complaining of, um, their pain, the function, the things that they can't do, work out what it is that they truly want to be able to achieve. Tell them, you know, these are the things that I'm seeing on my history and examination that we can modify, that we can change. We work with the right people. There's a lot of things that we can improve. It's going to take time. It's not going to happen overnight, but those goals are attainable and we need to work together
0: to achieve that. That's great. So more sort of focusing less on the problem, yes, sort of reassure or yes hearing them and validating that there is a problem but focusing more on the solution, particularly with modifiable factors and and being careful not to throw around too many, throwaway terms and we we see this again and again and again in in low back pain research with disc bulge for example people tend to patients latch onto these terms that we might forget about we throw we throw that term around but that's the term that they latch onto and I believe it's probably the same with with bone on bone because it's a coherent it's visually it makes sense they can model it in their mind I have pain because I have bone on bone and I guess that takes us really nicely into the next question you mentioned in your answer your fabulous answer that there is a there is a discordance between what we see on a scan and what we might see clinically or how a patient a patient might present so i know at university i was taught to look out for these these cardinal signs of oa you know these bone marrow edema or subchondral sclerosis and osteophytes and joint space narrowing and all this kind of stuff and i came out and I expected to equate a person's pain experience with what I see on a scan. Is that accurate, David? Is that wrong? And then, what is the role of, of imaging in the diagnose, diagnosis of osteoarthritis? Yeah, that's a, a great question and a
1: really important one. It's and it's an important focus of what is commonly a practice, what we call low value care in our community. So, the large proportion of people who come along and see me in the clinic will often have an x ray, but more frequently have an MRI. And they'll usually say to me, well, do you want to look at my MRI? And I more frequently than not say no. And that probably sounds a little bit counterintuitive to for someone, because I spend a lot of my research life focused very much down on imaging for disease modification trials. But by and large, we don't have treatments at the moment that are going to modify the structure of the joint. So there's not much point or value in my focusing down on the imaging changes that they might otherwise have in the joint. And more often than not, it's not going to markedly alter the treatments that I'm going to be advocating for that person, but it will be discouraging them from engaging in the treatments that I want to pursue because if they've had an MRI, they've had a torn meniscus, which is part and parcel of the osteoarthritic process, they'll latch on to that. And we know that that drives up rates of arthroscopy, which is just another form of low value care. So there's no positive advantage more often than not for this being done. The diagnosis of osteoarthritis is based on the signs and symptoms that a person presents with. So if they're over 50, they've got activity-related pain, they don't have long periods of morning stiffness, more often than not, they're going to have osteoarthritis in the joint that's affected. So you can use the American College criteria, you can use the European criteria, uh, you can use the NICE criteria in the UK. They're all pretty much the same. It's all based on symptoms and signs. And with that, you've got remarkable sensitivity and specificity to make the diagnosis. And you only want to use radiographs if you really got a clear suspicion that this is something else. You know, this could be a rheumatoid arthritis, Mm. could be a psoriatic arthritis, could be gout, whatever it might be. But only if you've got a clear index of suspicion that that's the case. Because more often than not, the diagnosis can be made just based on those symptoms and signs and getting the radiograph or getting the MRI is going to discourage them from undertaking the activities that you otherwise want them to do.
0: Okay, so I just want to reiterate that. The diagnosis of osteoarthritis is a clinical diagnosis and an X-ray or any other radiological imaging is not required for a routine diagnosis of osteoarthritis. Absolutely correct. Wonderful. That's what I want to hear. And so do, do I'm going to come back to this, this uh, discordance between what we might see on an imaging, whatever imaging we want to use and the experience of pain. Is that does that apply across the spectrum? So if you have severe osteoarthritis, is that is more is that more related to a pain experience or is it a, is it across the spectrum? It's pretty much across the spectrum. The discordance is less the
1: more severe structural disease is. So But there's still marked discordance in people with end stage radiographic disease. And despite all of our best efforts to better understand and tighten that relationship between that uh, symptom experience and the structural change using MRI and other sophisticated imaging methodologies, there's still a marked discordance, even in end stage disease. And I think that really, to me, emphasizes the important influence of other uh, psychosocial risk factors in a person's symptoms. And so the concomitant presence of you know depression, stress, and anxiety, which we know is present in about thirty percent of our patients. The fact that this disease is more common in people from lower socioeconomic groups that we know is influencing their expression of pain and disability. Uh, the concomitant features of sensitization. None of that can be characterized on imaging, um, and so, and we know that they play a really important role in the person's symptoms and disability. So it's not surprising that the discordance is marked, uh, albeit slightly less discordant and more severe disease. But you know, I can spend my life studying imaging, but it's still not going to
0: tell me why a person feels the way they do. Yep. Perfect. David, something's just come to me while I've been while I've been listening to you. A common bit of rhetoric that I hear reported to me secondhand uh, by patients is that their surgeon says that this is only going to get worse over time. We may as well replace the knee or replace the hip now you know you've already got stage three osteoarthritis. it's a matter of time before you blah 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 blah. is that is that an accurate statement? and I'm uh, uh, I haven't heard a surgeon say this uh, specifically. some some might have. but is, is that is that a bit of rhetoric we should sort of veer away from as as per the other labels that we've been talking about?
1: Yeah, definitely. definitely. I mean, I, I have a lot of patients that come along to me and tell me the same story that they've seen the surgeon, the surgeon says, what? Well, you're going to need a joint replacement at some time, so why why not get it done sooner, the, sooner than later? And I really want to stress that that is completely inaccurate. Okay. So there's lots of different trajectory studies that have been done in osteoarthritis looking at the prognosis of the disease. And for the vast majority of people, the prognosis and the trajectory of symptoms is a very, very flat one over many, many years, up mm. to decades. Um, similarly, from the viewpoint of the natural history of osteoarthritis, the underwhelming minority, so whether it be knees or hips, ever have a joint replacement in their future. So Mm. at this point in time, if we look at the natural history of disease, about 10% of people during their lifetime will require a joint replacement. And I think the common community perception, the common perception amongst many clinicians is that a joint replacement is inevitable, Mm. both based upon the fact that the trajectory of symptoms for the vast majority is flat we know based on large epidemiologic studies that a very small proportion of people ever require a joint replacement. I think the most important thing you can do for patients is basically to say, look, you know, prognosis is generally very favorable in most people. A small minority of people might need surgery in their future, but by and large, there are lots of things that you can do to help with the disease and that's what you should be focused on. And the prognosis is generally very good.
0: Yeah, that, that is contrary to the the common belief, I believe, where it's a progressive disease and it's only going to get worse over time. So that is a real breath of fresh air. So let's talk about treatment a little bit. Well, I could talk about natural history all day. I love that as a topic, but I want to get into treatment because that's important. There, you were involved in a trial that's recently been published to a little bit of controversy uh, called the START trial. It's it's not controversial because of the study itself, but the results it produced, particularly in the physiotherapy community who are obsessed with strengthening and think that strengthening cure all. So this this trial, and it may do, but this trial was interesting. It compared three groups, I believe, David, you'll know, more than me, but I'll attempt to summarize it. A high-intensity strength training group, a low-intensity strength training group, and then an, an intentional control, basically. And then tell us, David, what, what were the results and, and kind of what, what was the point of the trial in the first place? And, and then what are the cl- clinical implications of the trial? So the rationale for
1: doing the trial in the first place is I think there's a perception that the stronger you are and the more intense the training that you do, the better the outcome is going to be. Um, and this, this study. <laughs> I think put that to bed um, pretty clearly and basically showed no difference at all between the intention control, the low intensity strength training group, or the high intensity strength training group. And just so, just to give some people some sense of, of what that meant. So at the first intake, the participants in the trial uh, were asked to do one repetition max exercise. And they identified what that was. And for the high intensity strength training group, basically they were asked to do uh, three sets of eight repetitions at about 75% repetition max. The low intensity group was uh, three sets of 15 repetitions at 40% repetition max. Um, and the attention control was literally just about education about the disease and what they can do to manage it. And we really found no statistically or clinically meaningful difference between any of those three groups. And I guess for you know a health professional community group that's out there, you probably say, well, you, know, you didn't do this right. You didn't do this well. Um, but the reality is it was a well-conducted, rigorous trial, but everybody was treated the same. Um, and so that everybody was given the same exercises to do, irrespective of their deficits, irrespective of their, you know, their clinical profile, irrespective of the other things that are going on in their life. And I think as clinicians, hopefully we're a little bit more intuitive than that, and that we try to identify. Specifically, what's wrong in this person, as far as deficits are concerned, as far as modifiable factors are concerned, and we try to tailor our treatment to the individual. It helps to underpin, I think, a lot of research that's coming out at the moment that suggests, you know, there's no difference between um, standard quadriceps strengthening versus neuromuscular exercise. We can get the same effects through uh, yoga or tai chi. Or through cycling as we can through targeted strengthening exercise. And to me, the most important thing is that we identify what's what deficits a person has, what's correctable, what other modifiable factors they have, but probably most importantly, what we can get a person engaged in doing longer term that we know will help modify their symptoms. Um, and so I wouldn't discourage people from continuing to improve a person's strength if they have some deficit that needs correction, but try and best in the approach as to how you approach the individual to make sure that you're targeting the problems that they have, and then tailor your treatment so that it meets what their what their interests, what their preferences, and what their goals ultimately might be. Um, and so, I know I can't say that directly from the trial itself, um, but you know, if we educate people and we get the same effect as a high-intensity strength training group. Um, it basically says that if you give people information and you encourage and support them through the process, they're likely to get better.
0: Yeah, the fact that the that the two strengthening interventions didn't outperform the attention control was was very interesting to me. And 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 it's not to say that exercise you know, exercise is still good for a lot of other. It's not just about pain. You know, exercise is very good for a number of other sort of secondary benefits. Um, but that was a really fascinating finding. So what, why do you think that is, David? Do you do you think these people just received a bit of information or education about their disease and felt perhaps a little bit less worried or had less catastrophizing thoughts and were just speculating here? What, what, why do you think that they did comparably well uh, versus the exercise interventions? Yeah, so my my good colleague and friend, Steve Messier, who's
1: run now a number of these different trials is incredibly effective at imparting wonderful attention control interventions <laughs> uh, that essentially give people a lot of information about how best to manage their disease. And what we find in most of the attention control groups that we've that we've used in the past is that they lose weight, that they get strong, that they get more active by virtue mm. of the fact that you're telling them about what should be beneficial for their disease. Now, in the Intervention groups such as in START, the high intensity group doesn't necessarily get the same education, but uh, they do get benefits from the high intensity strength training group, but the the high intensity strength training, but they don't necessarily get the benefits that they might otherwise get from losing weight or taking medication or modifying activity and the various other interventions that the attention control group did get uh, advice about. And the other piece here that I think is so important for clinicians to hear is that patients redeem a benefit just from the contact that they have with the health professionals that are, that are seeing them. Um, and so Kim Bunnell and others have done wonderful studies, basically, and this isn't to detract from the important role physiotherapists have, but basically to say, you know, you go and see your physiotherapist, they're going to get better just from the fact that they've had some interaction with, with the clinician. They don't necessarily need to do anything. And again... <laughs> I don't want people to walk away with a message that, you know, I don't want people to be active. I don't want people to be strong. We do. We know that that benefits people, but they just get benefit just from interaction and talking about what they're feeling and hopefully having a good ear to listen to what, what, what it is that they're suffering from.
0: Bloody oath. I don't think that detracts from the role of a physio or any clinician. I think that's a a powerful role to serve. And then if you can get them to do a little bit of exercise on top, what's the worst that can happen? It's, It was a really well conducted trial, and from memory, I haven't haven't read the paper since it's probably came out, and I should have. David, apologies, but uh, I think one of the outcome measures was whether the interventions changed uh, joint forces. Was that right? Yeah, yeah, and and did did they? Yeah, so no, so no difference in symptoms,
1: no differences in joint loading between between the groups that were studied, and obviously you know, the hope here is that the stronger that you are, um, potentially the, the less loading that would be going through the primarily affected medial compartment, but that wasn't
0: found. Yeah. Something that I, for the first 10 years of my career as a physiotherapist would say to every single person with knee osteoarthritis or patellofemoral pain, knees in general, for some reason, was that we've got to get your quads, your calves and your hamstrings strong. So we so the force is distributed away from your knee to your muscles somehow. And I don't know where I learned that. Is that wrong based on this study? Or what about the body of evidence? What does it say? The body the body of evidence
1: would suggest that it's not wrong, but it's not changed by virtue of a high-intensity intervention versus another person who goes off and does their own types of care. Um, So I think it's still important from the viewpoint of impulse loading, particularly in a person that has impaired proprioception in a joint that's otherwise affected by osteoarthritis that the muscles around the joint be stronger so that hopefully some of the the abnormal or aberrant forces that go across a mechanically deranged joint can be um, dissipated appropriately across hopefully uh, a better functioning joint so i would Mm -hmm. still encourage you to say it's important for the periarticular muscles to be strong um, and to hopefully reduce loading by virtue of that but what this study suggests is that by virtue of uh, high intensity strength training, that doesn't provide a benefit over and above the low intense strength training yeah. group.
0: And and that joint loading forces aren't a mediating factor of recovery, particularly Correct. in this study. Correct. Yeah. 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 Did, did you do a? Se- is there a secondary mediation analysis to this study coming? not no, not done yet. There will okay. be, but it's okay. not
1: been done yet.
0: I, I, I love those studies. Okay, so let's go into uh, the role of weight loss and lifestyle programs in osteoarthritis. Is it as simple as saying if you lose ten kilograms, your pain experience, your pain symptoms, your function is going to go down or go up by X amount, or is there more
1: to it? There's a hell of a lot more to it, unfortunately. (laughs) I I wish it were that simple. Um, But, you know, I guess just to outline what the evidence is at the moment. So, again, you know, a wonderful study that Steve Massier, myself, and others did called the IDEA study, which was published in JAMA now close to a decade ago, where we got 450 people randomized to diet and exercise, diet or exercise. And over the course of 18 months, the diet and exercise group lost 10% of their body weight through uh, caloric restriction and exercise and with that 10% weight reduction their symptoms improved by 50% and about 40% of them got into what you'd otherwise call a low low pain or remission type state where their pain is less than one out of 20
0: mm-hmm. and
1: they stayed like that for a good uh, two to three years um, but I think the key point that probably uh, needs to be emphasized here is that it was a really intense intervention. And, you know, a lot of health professionals were involved in imparting that. It wasn't simply just a message given to the patient, go and lose weight, come back in a few months and tell me that you've lost weight and you'll feel a lot better. They really need to be supported through that journey. And it needs to be done in a way that makes sure that uh, they they have a dietary plan, they're given appropriate advice, they're counseled through it, they're monitored, they're carefully supported. Um, It can have great effects, but simply by giving the advice itself, most people don't necessarily have the wherewithal to go out and do anything with that information unless you give them the mechanism to do so. There are great resources around the world uh, to help support people through weight loss, and I would really encourage people to pursue that because it has massive clinical implications if they can get it off and keep it off.
0: Yeah, I have a huge problem when a clinician says you need to go and lose weight and this will help your knee pain or your back pain and your hip pain and then give zero support, zero resources to help that individual. And I'm sure if I was an individual that needed to lose weight and I heard that from my physiotherapist, I'd walk away going, well, what the what the fuck? What am I, how am I going to do this, mate? You know, like it's easier said than done when there's social uh, driving forces there as well. You know what I mean? It's complicated.
1: Yeah, no, it's not, and again, you know, when I'm sitting in front of a person, I really say to them, look, it's really easy for me to say here, sit here and say, lose 10% of your weight. And I appreciate mm. it. it's fully hard for you to go out and do that. But this is what we're going to do together in order for you to have the mechanisms to support that. So mm. again, you know, working in a multidisciplinary clinic, I work alongside dietitians that help people through that process. There are other programs that are out there called Healthy Weight for Life uh, that's supported by most health insurance funds in Australia to ensure that people with knee and hip osteoarthritis can actually get to a weight loss target of about 10%. And we've shown now in at least one study that that's quite effective in doing so. Mm. These days, there are also you know a range of pharmacologic options that can actually help people to get to weight loss targets. But it's really important, I think, that people be aware that just losing the weight on its own is not as effective as if they're doing the exercise at the same time. So when we compare diet, to diet and exercise in combination, we don't get the same effect just through diet alone. So it's important that they do some strength work and activity at the same time to get the maximal benefit.
0: Yeah, so that's a really key point. So, is it is it is it if you lose weight, is it the mechanical f- factor that there's less weight perhaps going through the joint, or is it the systemic, metabolic effects of losing weight and becoming fitter and increasing muscle mass, so on and so forth?
1: It's a, it's a combination. So, you know, again, great data from the IDEA study, but we did demonstrate that uh, inflammatory molecules like cytokines such as IL 6 came down through weight loss. And that weight, weight change mediating changes to IL 6 was related to a person's pain improvement. So, it is partly the systemic inflammation that goes with people who carry excess weight, predisposing to further deterioration. But by all means, it's still also the mechanical load. And so, for every kilogram that a person loses, there's about four kilograms less loading going through the medial tibiofemoral compartment. So it does play a really important mechanical loading uh, response. And so for every kilo a person loses, obviously, it has a huge influence on both the mechanical loading, but also that circulating inflammation. Um, And so, you know, to that end, you know, you want you want to change um, the body composition. um, And by that, reduce um, the amount of uh, fat tissue but also at the same time hopefully at least maintain the
0: uh the muscle composition and muscle strength yeah really well really well answered quickly what is the role of joint arthroplasty uh for let's say knee and hip osteoarthritis now it's, i know that's a big question we'll try and make it a bit more specific for you is Firstly, are these surgeries effective? And I think I know the answer to that. And then when should we consider these surgeries?
1: Yeah, so joint replacements is a wonderfully cost-effective procedure done for the right person at the right time. Uh, And I guess the key point in what I just said is the right person at the right time. So ideally, it's done in a person that has end-stage radiographic disease, has persistent symptoms despite appropriate other treatments. And that's often where times I think our health system fails. So about 80% of the time, I see people in the public hospital who've seen a surgeon, who've been put on a wait list, they haven't had any appropriate treatment before they've seen the surgeon. So they haven't had the exercise, they haven't had uh, the strengthening work done, they haven't lost weights, they haven't been provided with adjunct therapies. And so at least for me, it's critical that we provide patients with that opportunity. And there's now randomized trials comparing people that have gone off to surgery, comparing people that have had more appropriate conservative management, those people that have conservative management, about two thirds of them at two years say, look, I've done completely well. I still don't need surgery. I mean, our health system should be better at supporting people through the process of losing weight, getting more active, getting stronger and supporting them through that as opposed to, you know, getting expensive imaging, Getting the really expensive uh, surgical intervention done, um, and but unfortunately, our health system is not necessarily as supportive through that process as they should be.
0: David, this is all music to a physiotherapist's ear. We're gonna we're gonna induct you as an honorary physiotherapist. So thank, that's beautiful. Finally, before I let you go, I know you're a busy man. This is the most important question. So so spend some time on it. What book are you reading right now, and why are you reading this book, or what TV show are you watching right now? So I'll give you an answer for
1: both, for both Jared. But um, at the moment, I'm reading a book called Mastery by Robert Green, and it basically just tells about the lives of masters and the journeys they've been on and the, I guess the life lessons that can be imparted to everybody trying to become an expert in their field because, you know, like everybody, I'm still trying to learn, still trying to improve. And so that, for me, is a vehicle to hopefully continued improvement on that. It's a, it's a slog. So for anybody who's going to go and pick it up and just say, this is going to be... Easy going. It's a bit of a slog, but um it's it's well worth it. And I literally just finished that one yesterday. And I guess in an effort to address both of those questions, um I'm watching at the moment with my beautiful wife uh, a show called House of Dragons, which I would assume half of your listening audience is probably watching as well at, as well at the moment. But um it's
0: it's a lot of fun. It's intense, isn't it? Yeah. Um all right, David, thank you very much. Absolute pleasure, Jared. Thank you for having me along. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Shoulder Physio Podcast with Professor David Hunter. I hope you got just as much out of this episode as I did. If you want more information about today's episode, check out our show notes at www.shoulderphysio.com. If you liked what you heard today, don't forget to follow and subscribe on your podcast player of choice and leave a rating or review. It really helps the show reach more people. Thanks for listening. I'll chat to you soon. The Shoulder Physio podcast would like to acknowledge that this episode was recorded from the lands of the Tirubalang people. I also acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands on which each of you are living, learning, and working from every day. I pay my respects to elders past, present, and emerging and celebrate the diversity of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and their ongoing cultures and connections to the lands and waters of Australia.